Welcome to Snap Judgment from NPR and PRX. I'm your host, Glenn Washington, and if you're a guest of this country, you have to abide by a few rules. Rule number one is, you know, they say you got to go when your visa expires, but you know, America's nice, spacious skies, amber waves, truck stops. There's so much to see. And even though our friend Pascal was one full year past his visa, he decided to drive cross-country with his girlfriend from Lake Tahoe to Florida. We packed all our stuff uh, in California. I had a VW bus. A real road trip. It was really fun, really fun, really exciting. Start. <laughs> and he decided to take the tin. Which is bordering the Mexican border. Bad idea. On day number three, there was a stop on the highway in this beautiful El Paso, Texas. The cops are stopping every car, and an officer approaches Pascal. And I thought he, he was going to ask me if I had any plans or something, but no, he said, uh, are you an American citizen? And I'm like, no, 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 I'm French, I'm traveling. But that's no normal cop. And then I see his um, immigration officer thing on his jacket on his shoulder there. Then I started checking, and then he asked me uh, to see my passport. I said, no, it's back in Tahoe. How long have you been here? Well, just a couple, you know, couple weeks. Well, that's a lie. I'm here traveling uh, with my girlfriend, and... Uh, the officer is not buying it. Okay, pull over. They handcuffed me in this uh, little uh, cabana that they had on the highway there. They had Sheila come in later, ask her. How long has he been here? And she's, she can't lie. She said, about, about a year. She didn't realize what was going on to me. She didn't know. They looked at me. I looked at them and I said, that's it. We're going to book you into the immigration jail. Jail, it was terrible. It was depressing. There's one guy on one, on one side getting his head shaved and the other guy getting the Virgin Mary tattooed in his back. And he's trying to take a crap. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's quite disturbing. <laughs> and then you see peace and blood and hair and ink. A bad hygiene. <laughs> Very bad hygiene. I felt afraid. Ninety percent of the people are Mexicans, you know. But there were some few white people, dumb asses like me. <laughs> There was a guy from Germany. He got caught on the Greyhound bus overstaying his visa. There's a guy from New Zealand got caught because he was being polite. Are you American citizen? Yep. Okay, go ahead. Thanks. And the way he said thanks, they said, hey, excuse me. There was a guy from Iran there. He, he looks really scary, really scary. And he's been there for over two years. My nickname was France too because there was a guy named France already. Um, he was in that jail for three months, and he was a junkie, so he was jonesing big time. He could barely remember his French. I remember taking a shower once with France. <laughs> and France had that. He was purple. His body was purple, man. He had not one vein. He had shoot everywhere. He had shoot everywhere. Meanwhile, Sheila, Pascal's American girlfriend, is on the outside and she doesn't know what the hell to do. Sheila is, um, she's freaking out basically. She's, uh, she finally found that cheapest of the motels possible in El Paso, Texas, and uh, uh, trying to find a, a job, you know, to get me out of there, because I guess my bail bond is $7,000, and we have huge savings of about 250 bucks. So Sheila stays in El Paso and tries to get a job. One day she got an interview uh, to be a cocktail waitress. The day of the interview, she's at the one of the 7-Eleven looking at a map. She's lost. She doesn't know where the heck she is. And she's losing it by then. She's having a nervous breakdown, basically. Bereft of hope, Sheila loiters in the 7-Eleven. And then, a mystery man arrives. You know, a nice, well-dressed uh, Mexican man, focused on that poor lady, bent over, looking at a map, crying out of her brain and he's dressed in a suit and he's very well well dressed he's got nice boots cowboy boots with a white hat <laughs> a man in a white hat he seems very nice he's very polite 
in very well manners that man asked um, Sheila if uh, she needed help. Um, you, you look like you, you're not doing too well. Do you have anybody in the immigration jail? You know, that's the case in El Paso a lot. My car just broke down. I need a ride to downtown El Paso. If you help me, I can help you. Sheila hesitated at first. But Sheila decides to trust the guy in the white hat. They drove off together. She didn't even buy that map. She never went to a job interview either. They show up uh, in El Paso in one of the office there, and they go in front of all the line waiting. Made her feel important <laughs> all of a sudden after being so down. He knocks at the door, opens the door, sits her in front of his sister, and said to his sister, this is my friend Sheila, she needs help. And really nicely shook her hand and said, good luck to you, Sheila, and, uh, and thank you again for the ride. Then the guy disappears. And that was it, that was it with that man. And that sister, she works for the Catholic Diocese. It's a thing of free lawyers uh, that uh, take care of bad people like me, like really bad people like me. <laughs> uh, day five, uh, she gives me a visit, it's visiting day. I've got a, a visit, yeah, awesome. She says she, she found someone that can help me. They got my bond down to a thousand dollars that we got overnight from my friend Nicolas. So it took about five days. So I was, you know, in for about 10 days and 10 nights, you know. And voila, <laughs> I was out. I remember waving at my friends over there and waving goodbye and feeling bad for them. These guys are waiting uh, to be deported, basically. They were hating this country. They were hating this system. They didn't have nobody outside to help them out, you know. I was um, blessed to have Sheila to get me out of that hole, really, really, really. I don't know how that man flew in just at that time, at that same moment that she was in there. The, the magic man arrived and parked his horse in the front of the 7-Eleven. The hero disappeared into the sunset. <laughs> that man, I wish I would shake his hand today. I would buy him some wine or something. <laughs> snap judgment, the man in the white hat comes to the rescue. Now it may not be as literal as what you just heard. It may not even be a man. He may not always wear a hat, but one lone ranger will swoop into someone's life and change it forever. This is Snap Judgment. Snap Judgment loves the story core. It's fabulous. Two people get in a booth, sometimes families, friends. They work something out, some special secret about the past. We were listening the other day to two ladies speak about one faithful day on the job. Kate Preventure. I'm Kate Preventure. And Linda Rose. I am Linda Rose. This is StoryCorps snap judgment style. Knife-wielding maniac and everything. We work with folks who are severely, persistently mentally ill to help them stay out of the hospital. Kate was a social worker. Mental health therapist. Oh, mental health therapist. All right. I did direct care with folks and assist them with, you know, whatever, getting their medications, going into the apartments, making sure their apartments were clean, that they had food. And haircuts. Don't forget haircuts. And haircuts. Well, Kate and Linda have work to do. One day they get the call to go meet a client at his apartment downtown. We went up to his apartment, walked up to that fire escape hallway, yeah. which is pretty creepy and smelly. 
And then we knocked on his door. We knocked again. Then there was no answer. And no. yeah, I remember you saying, should we stay? Should we And we started to walk away. Then we got to the corner and we thought we heard something, so we went back. back. You're right. And I remember whispering to you, do you think he's been using drugs? Yeah. And I said, I don't know. And then we heard a ruckus. And that's when you said, you know, do you think he's trying to jump out the window? I was so worried that maybe he was going to try suicide because we were on that fourth story. And I said, I'll go to the fire escape, which is where we came in, and take a peek. So then you walked down. Yep, opened the door. And when you yelled to me, right? do you see anything? I right. yelled back to you, no, I don't see anything. And that's when I turned. He had you, which I thought he was punching you. Right. In the, I thought he was just punching you. That's when I started hitting my phone, 911. I started running down the hallway. I was going to lay into him with my shoulder. You yelled, mm -hmm. please be careful. He has something sharp and I've been stabbed. I can remember when he came at me out of the door, I was so stunned. I must have, it must have been like shock right away. And all I can remember thinking at first was, he's going to stab me in the face, so I put my head down. But he stabbed me five times in the head. He stabbed me in the side, too, and I got this cut on my arm and those little, like, pricks all over my chest. And that's when I went behind him, pulled him off. He kept slamming me in the back Into of the, the wall. Into the wall, yeah. Yeah, I was trying to hang on, hang on, and I just yeah. couldn't. He hit me one time, and it was just really hard. I knew I couldn't hang on anymore. Yeah, he fell down, yeah. Um, he turned, and I had eye-to-eye -eye contact. And when I saw on his face, it was the thought that went through my head is, oh, my God, we are not making it out of here. Yeah. We are going to die, Yeah. and nobody's going to find us. And as he started coming towards me, I realized I had on my Gore-Tec boots. Yeah and he couldn't slice through those, right. and I was gonna take out a knee. While you were kicking him in the knee, somehow I got the scissors out of his hand. Remember what you said, the oh. scissors the scissors were gone, because up until that point right. I never knew what he had. And that's when you said, I think we can take him down. I said, okay, let's let's do it. We got, we got one shot, because if we mess, we're done, and we took yeah. him down. And I straddled him and held down. I th yeah, you yeah, had his I arm, have. I had my knee. Right. On his ribcage and my foot by his throat. You were just dripping of blood. My pants were getting soaked. I didn't know how long you were going to be before you passed out. Yeah. It didn't look like anybody was ever going to come. I don't know how long we're going to be able to hold him down. Mm -hmm. That if you were to pass out. What would happen then? I was going to step on his throat and watch him die. I remember my son's face as he was on the bus heading off to kindergarten. I thought, my son needs me. Prior to that, I never thought I would have the capacity to kill. I still think about that all the time. How hard it is for you to have to live with that moment of knowing that you might have to do, that you might have to hurt him or kill him to save us. And I was still trying 911. <laughs> They couldn't hear us long enough. They knew that we And we couldn't remember the address. <laughs> That's right. I can remember the building number. And my thinking was, what the heck is happening here? This is a patient. I can't hurt him, but I can't let him hurt me. I had a hard time not kicking him in the face at that point. <laughs> when he said, Kate, you're dripping blood but, on I mean, me. I actually moved back. I remember telling my, you know, my brother Tom about that. You did what? Here this guy just finished stabbing you and you're moving back so blood doesn't, doesn't drip in his face. Wasn't he trying to get us to let him up? Yeah, too? he was begging you to let him up. Kate, please. Please let me up, Kate. He yeah. never asked me. Because oh. <laughs> you had your foot on his throat. <laughs> Would you please let me up? I'm all done with all my rage. Finally, that yeah, guy came, came out of the apartment. Remember how useless yeah, he was? Because he's crazy. I always knew he was crazy. Yeah. He walks back and forth, in and out the door all night long. And he goes, <laughs> Go ahead, just say it. <laughs> Do you guys need any help? When the guy on the floor said, <laughs> He goes, we're okay, we're okay. And we said, go down, can you go down and open the door? The police are on J Street. Right. Can you go open the door? Because we don't, they don't know goes, where we are. Oh, yeah. Then remember, the guy disappeared. The guy from the apartment disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> he had to go get his shoes on. Remember that? 
he goes to put his shoes on so we can go open more. I'm bleeding everywhere. Boy, the police were great, though. They were. They were. Even when the police came up, I was afraid they were going to be rough on him. <laughs> and then he gets up, and there's a dinner knife underneath him on the floor. Yeah, that. Yeah, he wanted us up so he could finish us off. So he could, he could, yeah. In that situation, and we've talked about this, there's so many things that people do. They freeze, they run away, they save themselves, and you ran back. Besides everything else I love about I you is what makes you a heroine to me. I know we go places together, and I'll introduce you to people I know, and I say, this is the woman who saved my life. Thank you to Kate Preventure and Linda Rose for sharing their story. To find out more about StoryCorps, go to storycorps.org. I'm Glenn Washington, and you're listening to Snap Judgment. Today, the man on the white horse gallops in and rescues whoever needs rescuing. A single individual hears the call and acts, lives saved, destinies altered. Up next, a 10-ton bomb on wheels threatens the good citizens of North Carolina. This is Snap Judgment from NPR and PRX. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from NPR and PRX. I'm your host, Glenn Washington, and today we're relying on the kindness of strangers to get us out of this fix we're in. Our next story takes us back to a different time, a lawless time. When men were brave, times were tough, and Jimmy Carter was president. This particular event occurred in around 1979. My job was selling, among other things, fertilizer. One particular day, I was uh, finishing up my work and it was getting close to quitting time, and one of my customers called and wanted a load of ammonium nitrate. And uh, being the eager salesman that I was, I wanted to make sure they got it because it was right during the spring season, and farmers needed it now, my dealer needed it now, so. So I thought, hey, I'll just uh, get the guys in the plant to load up the truck and I'll just take it to them. So that's what I did, in spite of the fact that I didn't really know a lot about driving a truck. It's a fairly, fairly large truck. You know, it is after five o'clock. Why don't we just have a couple beers? So, uh, so we're actually riding down the road in the company truck. Uh, with about 10 tons of ammonium nitrate, and, and we're actually sipping beer, and thinking it's Friday, pretty soon we'll be fishing, and uh, we'll get this thing done. So we're, we're going down the road, and uh, we uh, 
stop at a traffic light. We're just kind of looking around. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm doing pretty well here. I'm shifting the gears right. Clutch is engaging just fine. You know, load's not shifting. Everything's going great. And we're sitting there just kind of looking around. This guy comes running out with a fire extinguisher, a huge fire extinguisher in his hand. And uh, we're looking at him thinking, where's he going? And he runs up to, to our truck. And he says, the truck's on fire. Said, what? The truck's on fire. So I look down and, and there's smoke. This huge plume of smoke just rolling from under the truck. Right under the ammonium nitrate, right near the gas tank. And of course the two components you need are fire and, and fuel to blow up ammonium nitrate. So he turns on the fire extinguisher, crawls under the truck and just doses the whole thing in soaking wet. And uh, I told him I really appreciate you doing that. And the light changed and we headed on and made the delivery. Got rid of the morning nitrate. Probably saved um, a portion of the city there. Do you have a story with that perfect combination of bravery and stupidity? Well, don't just tell your friends about it. Let me know right here, snapjudgment.org. We've got podcasts, movies, pictures, all kinds of background right there on the site. The story sharing website allows you to put your own story there the way you want to. Audio, text, video, go on ahead, leave it for it. Now, coming up next, the most famous science fiction writer in the world reaches down, way down, and changes the course of a young writer's life. Our friend, Snap Judgment regular contributor, travel writer, and raconteur extraordinaire, Jeff Greenwald takes us to the Snap Judgment he made, standing outside a movie theater when he was a teenager, and how that one event led to a life-changing afternoon with the late, great sci-fi legend, Arthur C. Clarke. This story takes place when I was really pretty young. I was about 14, and the movie Bonnie and Clyde had recently come out, and it was making a big sensation. All of my friends were going to see Bonnie and Clyde. But for one reason or another, my parents had talked to a couple who they, they knew a few days earlier who told them that Bonnie and Clyde was very violent. And it wasn't the sort of movie that a kid should see. You know, back then, 14-year-olds were considered kids. You know, today they're, they're running corporations. So they forbid me to go see Bonnie and Clyde. So I, I, I nodded my head, and I, I was very uh, upset about it. And my mother left for work, and I got on my bicycle, and I rode to the um, Mid-Island Theater on, in Hicksville, Long Island, which is where Bonnie and Clyde was playing. And I parked my bike, and I walked up to the box office, and there was Bonnie and Clyde starting in 15 minutes. And I was just about to hand over my money, but you, know, you have to realize I was kind of, I was a geek. I was, I was a good kid. I, 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 go, I was afraid of getting caught. I was actually, you know, a, a wimp. And uh, what was I going to do? Was I going to go see Bonnie and Clyde? And I, I, I was standing there with my money in my hand and, and looking up, and I realized that, you know, it was a twin theater. And in the other side of the theater, there was this, this other movie that had just opened that looked very intriguing to me as well. It was 2001, A Space Odyssey. Just opened. I had loved, always loved the space program. I had watched all the takeoffs of the Mercury and the Gemini programs. I watched Star Trek religiously. I had watched the very first episode on September 8th, 1966. And I was like, 2001, a space odyssey. That, that, sounds, that sounds like it could be interesting. So I, I paid my money and I got my ticket and I went in and I sat through 2001, a space odyssey during this hot summer day. I sat through it once, and, and then I, it was time for the 4.30 showing, and I sat through the 4.30 showing, and then it was time for the 8 o'clock showing, and I st- sat through the 8 o'clock showing. I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey three times in a row, and when I, when I came out of the theater, I, I felt like I'd been completely transformed. I had never seen anything so wild, so amazing. I felt like I'd actually journeyed into outer space. 
I was completely and absolutely seduced by, by this phenomenal visual experience I'd had. So I, I was savvy enough at 14 to realize that the real credit for any movie goes as much to the writer as the director. And I had seen that the screenplay for this movie was written by Arthur C. Clarke. I'd never heard of Arthur C. Clarke, but I went to the library and I saw that he had written about 213 books. <laughs> With with titles like The Sands of Mars and An Earthlight and A Fall of Moon Dust. And I, I, I was just astonished. And I checked out eight of his books at the library. And I read them all within a week. And I went back and I, I checked out eight more of his books. And I read all those books. And I, I brought them back and I checked them all out week after week. And, and, and two or three months went by until I had read everything that Arthur C. Clarke had ever written. And at that point, at the age of 14, I sat down and I took out a big pen and I wrote him a fan letter and I wrote dear Arthur my name is Jeff I'm also a writer I have some ideas that I think you might find very useful and helpful and I I'm not going to tell them to you right now but I have a few stories I'd like you to read but to give you some sense of who I am here are some drawings of, of rocket ships and 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 weapons of the future that you might you might get some inspiration from and I, this, this letter was five pages long, and, and I, 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 I think if I got a chance to see the letter right now, I would, I would literally, literally die of embarrassment. I shamelessly, I looked, I looked in the who's who in literature, saw that he lived, of all places, in Sri Lanka. I folded up this five-page letter, which was all written on graph paper, the easier to draw these spaceships on, and I, I posted it to, to Arthur C. Clarke in Colombo, Sri Lanka. And I pretty much forgot about it, and months went by, and I thought no more, no more about it, except I, was, I saw 2001 probably about six more times in the interim. And then one day, out of nowhere, comes this postcard. And it is a very simple postcard, just your standard USA postcard. There's no picture on it, with my name, this funny writing on the front. And then the back, it says, Dear Jeff, received your letter. I will be at the Chelsea Hotel in New York City on such and such a date. Give me a call. Arthur C. Clarke. It was a short postcard, but I read it about 1,600 times, uh, unable to believe that it was true. And when the, the day came where, where, where Clarke said he'd be at the Chelsea Hotel, I called the number on the card, and sure enough, they put me through, and I was talking on the phone with Arthur C. Clarke, and he was saying, the Chelsea Hotel is off 8th Avenue on 23rd Street. I'd love to meet you. I enjoyed your letter. Come by and visit me. And I couldn't believe it. I was, I don't think that I have ever been as nervous in my life as I was at, at that young age, packing up the two or three page long science fiction stories I had written and bringing them into New York on the Long Island Railroad to show to the, the greatest idol I had ever had, this science fiction writer, Arthur C. Clarke. So I got to the Chelsea Hotel and I was shown up to his door and I knocked on the door and Arthur C. Clarke, who was at that time 52 years old, answered the door with a big smile. He invited me in, offered me a cup of tea, his British roots showing, of course, sat me down and just spoke with me for an hour and a half about space, about his adventures as a writer, about his life in Sri Lanka, about what it was like meeting the astronauts, about whether or not he thought that it would ever be possible to go to the moon in my lifetime. We, we talked about all these, these pressing issues, and he gave me his press pass from Apollo 9, and uh, it, was, it was an astonishing, astonishing day. And, and as it ended, I I kind of very hesitantly reached into my little day pack and I took out this envelope with these three short stories I'd written in it. And I said, here are the short stories I brought for you. I'd, I'd like you to read them. And he laughed and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, I make a practice of never reading anything that anyone gives me because I, it, my, really, my agent doesn't allow it because what if I get an idea from somebody? There'd be a terrible lawsuit. <laughs> so in this way, he very charitably and kindly told me to get lost. So I, I, I said, okay, and I asked if I could use the bathroom in his hotel room before I left, and, and, and I did, and then I, I went back to the street, went back to the train. I was sitting on the train, riding back to Long Island, uh, unable to believe this experience I'd had when I realized that I had left the manila envelope with the three short stories in it on Arthur C. Clarke's sink in his Chelsea hotel room. And I was devastated with embarrassment. I didn't know whether to call him and apologize or what to do. I was embarrassed to call him. I was embarrassed not to call him. I just did what I was very good at at that age. I, I, I tried to forget about it entirely. And so I did until a week later when the manila envelope arrived 
in my parents' mailbox. And I opened it up, and there were my three short science fiction stories, completely covered in red ink. Clark had read them, correcting all my absolutely idiotic mistakes, like, um, so you're walking on Jupiter, eh? Are you aware you'd be crushed like a bug? Or uh, uh, circling an idea that I thought was a pretty good idea. He, he would write something like, hmm, I don't want to say anything, but perhaps you got this idea from my book, Earthlight, which has the exact same concept. Or he would, he, would, he would write something like, oh, you see the Earth clearly from Mars, do you? It wouldn't look like much more than a speck. And I read through these stories with, with a combination of, of gratitude and just absolute um, you know, devastation by, by the amount of, of criticism. And then at the very end of the last story, Clark had, had put down his red pen and picked up a green one, and he'd written these words. He wrote, well, you still have about a million words of writing to do, but you're just about where I was at 15. It was, of course, a lie, and an, an extremely generous and charitable lie, but it was the lie that kept me going and kept me writing, and I've never stopped since then, and I credit Clark as being the catalyst, the force that put my writing career in motion. Jeff Greenwald's friendship with Arthur C. Clarke lasted nearly 40 years. You can find out more about the fabulous world of Jeff Greenwald at jeffgreenwald.com. You're listening to Snap Judgment, and today on the show, somebody comes in and changes everything. Right after the break, I've got a story that puts a new twist on this man with the white hat thing. I'm not going to give you any spoilers, no spoilers, but you just might want to get some soap and water ready to wipe off the creepy. Stay tuned. Snap Judgment. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from NPR and PRX. I'm your host, Glenn Washington, and today on the show, we need to be rescued. Normally, Snap Judgment is all about the people who take charge. They make a choice, the choice that changes their own lives. But when you get over your head, sometimes you need a hero. Our next storyteller, Brett, who was just 13 years old, when he fell literally in over his head into Lake Michigan. People who've never seen Lake Michigan have to understand that it may as well be called the Sea of Michigan. It's over 300 miles long, has waves that crash against a real beach, and their break walls. They're lines of boulders. They jut out of the water to slow down these waves. Brett was just a young man, and he and his friends were out having a good time in the water. They were swimming in the water, having a great time. It was his birthday, but what they didn't realize was that Lake Michigan can pull you under like a fist. He was swimming in the water, and his strength left him. He wanted to swim for sure, but he didn't have any more feeling in his arms. That lake was pulling him under. It was really, really painful. It was really, actually, it's the really scariest sound of like gurgling water of um, both my uh, my friends and my sister getting sucked back underwater. It was all of you. Yeah, it was. It was a, a group of thirty of us. I thought I'm gonna die. I knew it. I I just was so certain that I was gonna die. <gasps> 
I wasn't ready to die. I tried as hard as I could to paddle. I tried as hard as I could to hold my breath. It didn't matter what you did, like the water was so strong, it was so powerful that it hit your stomach in such a way that it pushed all the air out of your chest. I thought, I can't stand this anymore. I, I grabbed onto so many slimy rocks, so many slippery bumps, and it was cutting me, and it, it hurt, and I felt sick, and I thought, I can't take it. And um, I started getting hit up against these rocks really hard. I would try to grab onto them and, and hug them like a tree stump or something, but they were so slimy, and the, and the wave was so strong, it would pull me off of them. And I'd get ripped down along the rocks even farther and farther, and it hit my chin, and it hit my chest and my knees, and... When I was there about to die, literally, I mean, not even kidding you, about to die, and I was on the last rock of that wave breaker. I remember trying to swim and my arm just bent over this rock perfectly. The last rock, the very last rock, and it, it was just about to slip. And I remember this, this clamp holding onto my arm. He heard a voice yell. Grab onto me, grab onto me. And I, I grabbed onto his hand really quick. And he had my wrist and he pulled me and it actually actually hurt worse because I was already bleeding but he pulled me off this rock and there was all these clams or shells or something and they're all they're all like razors and he said you're okay I've got you you're okay I had no idea that someone could run down that pier as fast as he could because because I, I mean think of it think of you laid out a line of ice cubes across your counter and he had to make someone run across those things. That's what it was like. It was running across a bunch of boulders that were odd-shaped and somehow meshed together in a perfect puzzle. Slippery, filled with water. He ran all across the entire thing. You know, it's a miracle. He had all this, this, this awful blood running down his thigh because his knee was so cut up. It was so open, you could see his bone. And I remember thinking, you're not okay, man. You know, why did you do that? You're not okay. He hugged me. <laughs> it's sad, it's sad saying it, because it makes me want to cry, but he hugged me and I thought I was still in the water because I could feel like how cold I was and how wet I was. I was just bloody. Oh my God, I was just bloody. It turned out that the man had pulled out five of the kids, the weakest ones, the ones who were about to be swept into the lake. He had saved all my friends and both my sisters and, and, and he saved me last. I remember hugging my mom and my dad came running over and he gathered up all the other mothers and parents and he said, they're all here. I never saw him again. Like I remember. you went and saw your parents and then you just turned around and he was gone? Yep. The last time I saw him, I was talking to my mom. I said, that guy, dad, that guy, he saved me, dad, I'm okay. Brent never got his name or where he was from. So somewhere out there, if 13 years ago, you saved five kids from Lake Michigan, and you've got a scar on your knee, know that here, there's a man who'd like to say thank, thank you. you. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu. Brett Tennis is now an actor. His latest movie, Little Rock, screened at the San Francisco International Film Festival. Today, the man in the white hat charges to the rescue. Somebody from somewhere comes in and changes everything for somebody else. But this is snap judgment. This is public radio like you've never heard it before. We can't just let heroes be heroes and leave it at that. No, no, no. This is the real world. And in the real world, no good deed goes unpunished. Our own Sarah Jesse has the story. Nancy Crow is not a cat person. In fact, cat people freak her out a little. So when an ex-husband showed up on her doorstep, cradling a cat in his arms, she only had one thing to say. No, 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 no. He says, but I can't keep it at my apartment. Just keep it overnight. That was 10 years ago. 
And that's Sophie. And then another friend paid her a visit. I just need you to take care of this cat overnight. I have a home for it. And I said, not me. No, I'm not a cat person. So anyway, that's how I got Tuppence. <laughs> After one more visit from one more friend, Nancy ends up with three indoor cats. They make her notice that there are cats everywhere that need saving. When the housing market crashed, people were just packing up, driving off, and abandoning their cats. Left to fend for themselves in the wild, these cats are making more cats. And more cats. So I just, on my own, decided to have them all spayed and neutered. But these cats are feral. They don't purr. They don't meow. And they don't just walk up to strangers. So I had to get a trap, a cat trap. You put some food in, and when they go in, it pops the door shut. Nancy had to keep all these feral cats somewhere until she could take them to the vet. So she decided that each time she caught a new cat, she'd put it in the downstairs bathroom. I would walk in, and they would literally, literally climb the walls. There's scratch marks all over the wallpaper. <laughs> it was a freak show in there. <laughs> so I had this, all these cats spayed and neutered, and they're all healing, and they're doing just fine. And I saw some flyers out on the light posts with this beautiful white cat on it. And Nancy thinks, wait a minute. That looks like one of the cats I just had neutered. She goes back to her downstairs bathroom where all the feral cats are recovering. And sure enough, there's one beautiful, pure white cat that's just as mangy as the others. But now that she thinks about it, it does seem a little calmer than the ferals. And I said, oh my goodness. Nancy takes a deep breath and calls the number on the flyer. The woman who answers the phone doesn't speak much English, but they manage to determine that, yes, this beautiful white cat was theirs. She grabs the white cat out of her downstairs bathroom and heads to the owner's house right across the street. So the lady is standing at the doorway. Her husband is standing behind her. Nancy holds up the cat, and the couple are elated. That's our kitty. He's back. Nancy wants to make them happy, but she also has to let them know there's a catch. I was explaining how I had all these cats spayed and neutered. And she's looking at me and trying to translate that to her husband. And she says, spayed? And I said, yeah. So I turn him around and I point to his balls where they should have been. And I said, snip, snip. <laughs> Gone. <laughs> he goes, no, no, no. Needless to say, she hasn't really talked to them much since. Nancy waves to the guy, Tony, when she sees him driving down the street, but he just stares straight ahead. This is Snap Judgment. Now, to understand this story, first you have to place yourself in isolation. When your nearest neighbors live two miles away, those small trips become real important. We lived in a trailer in the middle of nowhere, Michigan, in the summer with no school, no friends, no visitors, no nobody, with just us trapped, and my brother and I slowly grew to hate each other. It was just too hot too still, too boring in the middle of Farmville. I couldn't breathe, nothing was happening, nobody, conversation too hard, even the food tasted like frustration. I just wanted to talk to somebody I wasn't related to. It didn't matter who, somebody, somebody else. And that's why our trips to the teeming metropolis of Cairo, Michigan were so very important. We'd go to the library, the grocery store, maybe even get some ice cream before returning back. There, there, their home, it was driving me crazy, and so we were ready. My two brothers and I, my mom said it was time to go. But you couldn't rush it, couldn't get giddy or nothing. I was only nine years old, but I already knew the universe was tricksy. You had to be cool. 
Don't look at the elephant, the undoing. Make your own reality. Don't expect no problems. Won't be no problems. We got ourselves together. Just like a happy family would do. We got ourselves together and walk casual down the driveway with a county squire station wagon waited for us on the street. My mother wore a nice dress. Yellow, pretty, not church nice, but nice. Our fingers were clean, our legs were lotion. We were not handing out reasons for people to look down on us. They already had plenty. I smacked my brothers around a little bit, but nothing major, because we had already started concentrating, already gotten quieter before getting in the car. Wood trim disintegrating even as we climbed in. We climbed into the car as if we expected to go somewhere. Please let us go somewhere. My mother was last. She got in, let her purse fall down her lap, held her keys in her hand, held them for a moment, and we saw her mouth a prayer quiet. We prayed to Jesus. Jesus, I got to get a break. Just a little break. Give me a little break, Jesus, and I'll do everything I'm supposed to do. My mother picked up her key, put it in the ignition, there. We didn't want to move. Didn't want to move. Didn't want to admit anything was going on. My mother didn't either. We just sat there in the car, everybody quiet. We had to be going somewhere. Please let us be going somewhere. We had to be going somewhere. Tractor pulled up alongside of us. Farmer Joe, we got off the seat, came over. Mother rolled down her window. What seems to be the trouble? <laughs> Joe, Seems like our car is having a little trouble getting started. Well, where's your man? Well, he's at work, Joey. Why don't you go over and pop the hood? Maybe I can give it a little look. Mother popped the hood. Joey fiddled around for a little bit. Go ahead and try her now. She turned the ignition one more time. And that big... Roti growled. Our car was ready to go. Yeah, we was going to Cairo, Michigan. Yeah. Joey kind of strutted back over to the car, looked back in. Yeah, you're all set, ready to go. Thank you so much, Joey. Yeah, you know, I just want you to know that I never had no problems with colored moving in this neighborhood. You know, in fact, I always thought that colored women were real pretty. Real pretty. I know your man's working hard. If you ever have any trouble during the day, Never have anything you need getting done. You just let me know about it. You just let Joey know about it. And I was in the back, and I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that flower man stepping to my mom's? You just let me know about it. Anytime, day or night, anything you need. Never had no problem with black women. Never did. Never had no problem. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. My mother kept her head straight, looking at the windshield. Finally, he turned back around and got on his tractor. My brothers were looking at me. I was looking at them. What happened? We, we took off, and my mother gunned it. We were driving really, really fast. She never drove really, really fast. We were all excited. My mother took us to the store. We went to the library. We even got some ice cream, and she let us get two scoops. She never, ever let us get two scoops. It was like that bad taste wouldn't get out of my mouth. That bad taste wouldn't get out of my mouth. We went back home, started cooking dinner. My father came back in, said, how y'all doing? Mother didn't say anything to him. He just kind of, hey, Dad, what's up? He sat down at the dinner table. She put out the fried chicken. How y'all doing? What happened today? My mother put her head down. My brothers, I'm the oldest, they looked at me. And I saw my mom shaking her head, just shaking her head. Nothing pops. Everything's cool.
Snap Judgment was produced by myself, but never alone. They won't leave me alone. Tell me, I don't know how stuff works in here, please. But give it up for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. The god of war and radio, Roman Mars. And, and what's that? Itchy, scaly skin, can't sleep at night? Well, we don't know how to help you because we're hanging out with Rebecca Megahertz. Rita Daniels keeps hope alive in the darkest night when the computer crashes and all you can hear is the screaming. Most Steph, Snap Judgment Stephanie Fu, DJ Ben to the Smooth Bruce Picasso, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, Snap Judgment's Will Urbina. Taking pictures for the radio is Christian Pollock. Now, we are inspired by Youth Speaks because we know the next generation can speak for itself. YouthSpeaks.org. And if you happen to see the Corporation for Public Broadcasting about to eat a big, delicious sandwich with tomatoes and pickles and four kinds of cheese with a special sauce, knock it out of their hands. They're allergic to delicious sandwiches. Just say you're acting on behalf of their good friends at Snap Judgment. Many thanks. And if you have been searching for someone to finally put the public in public media, your search is over. The Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. And while this is not the news, in fact, you could come with me to northern Michigan, to an area I know in the UP. You could wait with me there for a while, days, barely moving, barely moving until on the morning of the fourth day, you see them with your own eyes. Four, count them, four Sasquatch loping through the field looking for berries, just like I said the whole time. You could see all that. And you would still not be further away from the news than this is. This is NPR. NPR.